Well, with a view to the help of God, let's uh, turn then to that passage that we read from Exodus, chapter 16. And uh, reading in verse 3. Exodus 16 and verse 3. And the children of Israel said to them, that's to Moses and Aaron, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Especially those words in the middle of the verse where they recall the land of Egypt as a land where we sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full. Now Israel uh, camped for a while at Elam, where the Lord had provided the palm trees and the springs of water. And that would have been a well, certainly was a time of refreshment to them in terms of the things of this life, but of course it was particularly, to many of them anyway, a time of spiritual refreshment. That's what it should have been. A time to recall that the Lord is good and has done them good after all, even if for a time they thirsted. And I'm sure they would probably have liked to stay longer, but the pillar of cloud and fire that was leading them uh, rose up and began to move, and of course they knew then that the Lord was calling themselves to move. And again, I suppose we could say that the move was a disappointment because the pillar of cloud and fire again began to move south. Their desire was to move east and north, but the pillar moved south. In other words, it took them deeper into the Sinaitic Peninsula and therefore deeper into the wilderness, into what is effectively not just simply a wilderness, but a genuine desert, at least in many parts of it. The particular area into which it led them was the wilderness of Sin, with a capital S. Now, it's important to understand that this word sin has nothing to do with the ordinary word sin. It's actually just a place name. That's why I think it's sometimes better to write it or pronounce it as zin, Z-I-N, because that just takes away the idea of sin altogether, which we should. Now, of course, it is true that they sinned in this part of the wilderness. They also sinned in other parts of the wilderness. The only point I'm making is that this word as a place name has nothing to do with the concept of sinning against God. But the fact of the matter is that they did sin here. And if we count their rebellion beside the Red Sea, you remember that we looked at that and the Bible calls it a rebellion, if we count that, and then if we count their complaint at Mara where the waters were bitter, and so we should, this becomes the scene of their third trial and their third murmuring, and the third miracle 
that the Lord provides for them, in spite of their murmuring. The first murmuring was met by the parting of the Red Sea, the second murmuring by sweetening the bitter waters of Mara, and here this murmuring is met by a provision of quails in the evening and remarkably bread from heaven in the morning. Now there are two ways to view this incident and uh, it's just far too much to, to view it together at one time. So uh, next floor's day, God willing, we'll look at it from another point of view. But the two points of view are, first of all, to see it just as a trial of their faith. What kind of trial was this? Does it differ from the previous one? And how did they respond to it? The response seems more or less identical to their response to the previous two trials, but again, is it? The second way of viewing the incident is to see it as a deep spiritual lesson concerning our need of the Word of God, which the manna symbolises. Now, you can't tell that, I suppose, on, on first reading, but certainly as you work your way through the Bible, as you come to Deuteronomy, and especially as you come to what Christ has to say about the manna from heaven and the true bread which came from heaven, and I am the bread of life, uh, when we come to passages like that, we realise that the manna is more than simply bread. It is more even than bread from heaven. It is a symbol of something which we all need in the wilderness, and that is the Word of God itself. Whether the Word written or the Word incarnate, the Lord Jesus himself, he who was the Word and who was in the beginning with God, it speaks of our need of the Word of God written and incarnate. So the manna symbolises that. We'll look at that, God willing, next time, perhaps over a couple of Lord's days. But I would rather just confine ourselves this morning to consider this as just another trial that comes the way of Israel. And we'll just follow the same basic pattern that we followed at the Red Sea and at Mara. We'll consider the trial and the people's response to it and how God responded to that in turn. Now let's take, first of all, the trial. Now we're hardly a couple of months into the wilderness and you'll notice that already we're getting the impression that trials are not rare but in fact very common. And if you've become a Christian, you'll have discovered that yourself. Trials are not rare, but they are common. We're not even to be surprised sometimes, Peter says, at the fiery nature of the trials that overtake us. And the reason for the tests help us to understand their frequency. After all, the purpose of the test, as we saw last week, is not simply just to assess us as such, but to purify us. A real test or examination reveals where we are and where we need to be. And we've always got to remember that in connection with our trials. They're there for a purpose. They're not for God to see where we are and where we need to be. They're for ourselves to see where we are 
and where we need to be because God's purpose is to bring us to pass the examination or to purify a people to himself who are zealous for good works. That's what God wants out of these trials. That's their purpose. His primary interest is our purification, our holiness, that we be holy as he is holy. To us, our primary interest very often is our comfort. To God, it is our holiness. And I suppose we touched on that from another angle on Thursday evening, that our supreme prayer should be for our holiness, because that's God's chief desire concerning us. And very often he withholds other things from us until that becomes our chief concern. Now, you'd think in a way that there's not much more to add to the idea of the trial and the people's response than we saw last week. After all, the trial is similar. Last time it was hunger. Sorry, thirst. This time it's hunger. Last time the people murmured. This time the people murmur. But actually there is a difference. Now let's first of all understand that certainly this trial is again appointed by God. Not just by way of permission, but he has something that he wants to bring out. In Deuteronomy 8, in the little passage we read, we're told that God allowed them to hunger. He allowed them to hunger. Why? Well, again, to see what they had learned. This time, what they had learned from the Red Sea and at Mar. It's one thing to teach. It's another thing to learn. Important lessons were taught at the Red Sea and at Mara, but had these lessons been learned? And really the acid test of that is again in their response. Was their response to hunger prayer number one? Because that's what God wants as number one. Whatever our need to pray and to bring it to the Lord. Not as a last resort, but as a first port of call. Remember that? There's a huge difference between prayer as a last resort and as a first port of call. And only when we learn to come to the Lord with the smallest needs as a first port of call are we really learning our lesson. So do they pray? Do they trust? And do they wait upon the Lord who opens his hand and gives sufficient food to all his creatures. We're told in the scriptures that he feeds the ravens. Um, he clothes the lilies. How much more will he not clothe and feed us? So will they wait upon the Lord? That's always the test. So he allows them to hunger. Now our trials never create unbelief in our hearts. They only reveal it. We sometimes think that the trials create a bad response in us and they create unbelief. Well, they don't. They don't have the power to do any such thing. The fact of the matter is that if we didn't have these trials, we wouldn't see our sins very often. They would eat away and consume us without realising it. And the fact is that easy living can mask a sinful life. 
If there's too much prosperity and no adversity, then a multitude of sins can grow and they will grow undetected. The Bible says if you faint in the day of trial, your strength is weak. If you faint in the day of trial, your strength is weak. Now, how did you know that your strength was weak? Well, because you fainted in the day of trial. So, if you didn't have a day of trial, how would you know that your faith was weak? Good question. You would probably assume it was strong. Take, of course, how often do we have to go back to Peter for our examples? But take Peter as a good example of that. Peter obviously had a very warped view of his own attainments in the spiritual life. And now his heart was good, it was very, very good. But there's no doubt that he hadn't been cultivating his spiritual life as he ought to have. And when the Lord forewarned him that his condition was not as healthy as he thought it was, Peter refused to listen to that. And he insisted on the fact that whatever trial would come their way that evening, whoever else would fall, he wouldn't fall. They may forsake you and flee, but not me. Not me. Now, of course, in that he was badly wrong. Uh, the Lord told him he was wrong. And the trial came to expose it. Had the trial not come, I suppose Peter would never have known. God's trials are there to show us our sins and to repent from them, to forsake them, and to grow through the whole experience. It matters to God whether we learn or not, and whether we grow or not. You may think it's not all that important whether we grow or not, providing we're in the kingdom. It's important to God, because as I said earlier, his primary interest is in your holiness. And even if I was to say that his primary interest is in your salvation, that wouldn't do justice to it. Because we, we view salvation in terms of getting to heaven. God views salvation in terms of likeness to himself. And that's easily forgotten. Sanctification is just as important as justification to God. In fact, justification is only a means to sanctification. For God. God's interest is not in justifying you, it's in sanctifying you. And we must never lose sight of that. It's our holiness that matters to Him, not whether we have a passport into heaven. Now, there's lots of other ways in which our prosperity can mask our sinfulness. Just the other night, on Thursday evening, I was talking about briefly about our, our daily bread and our prayer for our daily bread. Now, none of us really, I would imagine, have much difficulty getting our daily bread. I, I know we're all conscious of a previous generation that did. And in this generation, too, in different parts of the world, there are people who have difficulty, but we don't really. As I said, our fridges are full and our cupboards are full. And the fact that we get it so easily can mask two things. First of all, that you're not really asking for it all that sincerely. 
and second, that you're perhaps not even all that thankful for it when you have it. These two things. Are you really asking for it daily? Are you thankful for it when you receive it? Beware lest when your belly be full, you forget the Lord thy God. <coughs> now only you know whether your morning prayer asking for your daily bread is real and hearty, or an evening prayer thankful for your daily bread is real and hearty too. So perhaps, if it's not, well maybe God will withdraw it then. Might take away either that daily bread or your ability to eat it then we might start being more thankful for our daily bread. Now that is just a simple principle that applies across the board. And the principle has to do with the fact that our prosperity can mask spiritual sickness. And only God can bring that sickness to the fore by bringing us into particular kinds of adversity which reveal our particular kinds of sin. And if we are interested in our own holiness, and if we're interested in one another's holiness, we will thank God for our trial, because we can be sure that it is designed to bring to the fore whatever it is that needs to be brought to the fore in order to be dealt with. Now, it doesn't feel like that very often. It doesn't feel like that very often. But that's what God is doing. And that, of course, in connection with Peter, is why God allowed Satan to sift it. Uh, the Lord heard Peter's protestations of his strength and his firmness and his loyalty. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift all of you tonight. You plural in the Greek. Desired to sift all of you tonight. But my prayer, Simon, is for you. This time, you singular. In the Greek, you singular. My prayer sign is for you, more than all the rest, that your faith would not fail, because maybe it's even weaker than anybody else's. And that's because he was too self-confident. So the trial reveals the truth. And at least when it reveals the truth, we can then deal with it. And I suppose looking back, we need to ask ourselves, in connection with all the trials that we've passed through, what did God teach me there? What did he show me? What have I learned? And what have I put into practice? Or, like I said last week, is it a case that we just have to keep resitting the same exams in the Christian life, instead of moving on? Always stuck in primary, never moving to secondary. If, we, if Israel had learned from Red Sea and Mara, they would certainly learn that they cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And these words include the provision that I will be with you, and I will take you to a land that flows with milk and honey. Live by that. When you're hungry, live by that, that the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, that is my name. Was this text not the text that Christ quoted in the wilderness when Satan tempted him and came to him and said to him, well, will you not take the bread and the stone and turn it into bread? 
And the Lord said to him, That it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That means two things. First of all, that I am spiritually sustained by the word of God in the wilderness. Second, it means this, that the word of God taught me to come into the wilderness. And I believe in a wilderness that the God who told me to come into it is a God who will feed me in it. So I'll wait for his time and for his provision. And hungry as I am, or ravenously hungry as I am, I will not abuse my power. I will not step outside the will of my Father by turning a stone into bread. No, but I will live by the word of God which commanded me here and the word of God which is my meditation while I am here. Now that's the test. Will they pray and trust? How do they respond? Well, of course, they murmur. The word complaint here is the word that's often translated, certainly in the King James Version, murmur. And it sounds very similar to the complaint that they had at the Red Sea. If you would go back just for a moment to uh, chapter 14 and verse 11. Chapter 14 and verse 11. Well, verse 10, of course, uh, Exodus 14, 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes. Now, now here you go, you're lifting your eyes from God and unto the problem. Behold, the Egyptians marched after them, so they were very afraid. And they cried out to the Lord. But then, remember, that prayer was not much of a prayer of faith. It was a complaint. And we know that because immediately in verse 11, they said to Moses... Because, or is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Because it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Now, come back to our own passage here in chapter 16. And listen to how they respond in verse 3. Sounds like the one at the Red Sea. The children of Israel said, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger, the language of frustration and of anger. But there is a difference. There's a difference between the two responses. In the first case, they're simply saying, we'd have been as well dying in Egypt rather than going on this long trek and dying in a hot wilderness. In the second response, there's a recollection of pots of meat and eating bread to the full. In other words, what this trial brings out is something lurking within their fleshly attachment to Egypt itself. Their fleshly attachment to it. 
Now, in a way, that's no surprise. Egyptians is what we all became because of sin, really. And there's a part of us that's always comfortable in Egypt, however uncomfortable it can sometimes become. You'll remember the um, Christian who said long ago, I don't know who it was who originally said it, it might have been Matthew Henry, I think, that it was far easier to take Israel out of Egypt than it was to take Egypt out of Israel. That is so true. And the fact is that when this trial comes, they look back. And when they look back, they seem to see things in a very strange way. Now, looking back is something that we always have to be careful about. There's a way of doing it that's right. There's a way of doing it wisely. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8, which we read together, it reminds us that we're to look back. Moses tells the children of Israel that they're to look back over the 40 years which the Lord their God hath led them in the wilderness. Visiting every spot, every visitation, every lesson taught, <coughs> however poorly it was learned. Even in Psalm 77, which again we sang just a couple of weeks ago in connection with these things, the psalmist is nearly in despair because of the difficulty of his situation and he asks these pertinent questions is God no longer kind has God forgotten to be gracious and then he says this is my infirmity I shouldn't be giving in to these thoughts this is, this is my weakness I will remember the years of the right hand of the most high I will recall the mighty works done by the Lord significantly as you go to the end of Psalm 77. What he really recalls is the Exodus and the way that God led his people through that. But good as it is to look back, and I'll say a little more about it in a minute, there's a danger in looking back because the devil can easily affect how we see things. And he makes your memory play tricks. Our memories play tricks anyway when we get older. We start imagining things that never actually happened because we thought about them so often. Even in simple things, we think we did something that we only thought about doing. But one thing the devil does is he gives you a selective memory. And he gives you also a distorted memory. Let's take the selective memory first. Isn't it amazing how a people who were enslaved in Egypt that they could speak about having pots of flesh and plenty of bread? We're told in Numbers 11, a little later on, I know Numbers comes a long time after Exodus, but actually chronologically not so. We're told that they remembered the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions and the garlic. You'd have thought they were feasting at king's tables. That's, that's a stunning recollection of life in Egypt. Is, is that really all they remembered? Did they not remember the mud huts, the genocide, the baby boys being thrown in the River Nile, the impossible quotas, the lash of the whip, the lack of religious freedom, not being able to offer sacrifice of bulls and goats which were sacred to the Egyptians. Do not remember any of that? 
No. It's the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Now you can look back sometimes yourself as a Christian. You can sometimes look back at the world and you say, in your trial, you don't, you don't say this when things are going very well. Of course you don't. But when things start going quite difficult, you say, oh, well, I, I remember, you know, it wasn't like this in the world. It was so much fun. Remember the laughs we used to have and the good times. I remember when we were all drinking to, together in the pub and the camaraderie we used to have. When we were dancing in the halls or in the clubs, going out with the boys and the girls. And the days were so long and the nights were so happy. Is that all you remember? You don't remember the tears or the loneliness or the emptiness. You don't remember being sick in the toilets or sick in the back of the hall. You don't remember the guilt. You don't remember coming home or your life falling apart or the fallouts you had with people. You don't remember the very emptiness and meaninglessness that made you turn to the Lord in the first place. No, you don't. That's all gone. Because the devil has just selected selected certain things and he brings them before your mind and says, this is Egypt. Why, why are you? in this wilderness. And that selective memory doesn't just apply when it comes to to going back to Egypt. It actually applies to, to the survey that you take of your Christian life too. The devil can sometimes make you look back on that life as though you achieved nothing and did nothing that's worth anything at all. He, he'll just take certain incidents or certain bits and he'll constantly bring them before you, or perhaps even make you take a certain kind of overview that makes you feel, well, what have I done, or what's all that been about? I remember myself when I became a Christian. After a few years, I felt that, um, well, you know that things had started to get difficult. And the reason for that is that I had met the Amalekites. And when we meet the Amalekites, things do start to get quite difficult. Um, and this idea came, came to me and said, actually, it was almost a voice, it wasn't a voice, but it's a powerful suggestion which basically said, well, you never, you never had this, you know, where you were before, which, is, which wasn't quite true, but that's how he presented it. And it's basically saying, well, you know, you can, you can just go back into Egypt. doesn't mean that you need to renounce your, your new life completely, but just, just go back into Egypt. And if you, said to, if you said to him in response, which I said effectively in response, as I was thinking these things through, that, oh, well, what about this and that? You know, the, the very disappointments and the emptiness and all these things. The, the devil was quick to come back and say, oh, yeah, that's because your life was a bit of a mess. In fact, it's quite a good thing, really, that you've started going to church because you've sorted yourself a little bit out. There's much more self-control in your life now. Now you can go back into Egypt. You'll be more in control of these things and you can enjoy the world on your terms and in your way. So you won't have a hassle that you used to have and you'll have the good things that you used to have. It's quite stunning how plausibly he can present such a picture to you quite amazing. But of course, the devil was in it. The, 
devil was in it. Beware a selective memory when it comes to your past. By the way, here I would urge you, they, they always say that um, a preacher needs to be careful that he himself does what he urges the congregation to do. Here let me ask you to do as I say, not as I do, or not as I did. Because one regret I have in life, and I've had it for a long time, is that I didn't record some of the things that the Lord did in my life. Didn't record them. I used to think about keeping a diary as something that was a bit vain and pretentious. But of course it's only vain and pretentious if you're vain and pretentious yourself. And there's no need to be. When they say a diary, when there's a diary you always think you have to write something every day. Well, that's not important. Maybe a journal is the best way to describe it. Where you write about anything that the Lord has done for you or taught you. If I had my life again, I would do that. Why? Because you forget. You forget. And for some strange reason, it's always easier to remember the things that you shouldn't and to forget the things that you should. It just is. Or at least it is in my experience. And it seems to have been in Israel's experience too. It's a good thing to mark these things. After all, Israel had their own way of marking them. Not just writing them in the book which becomes the Bible, but they erected the stones when they crossed the Jordan. A cairn that would speak to the generations of what the Lord would have done there. Of course, when Samuel led Israel to unexpectedly defeat the Philistines, he erected a famous stone which was called Ebenezer, which means the help of God. And he said... Hitherto the Lord has helped us. So, of course, looking at the stone, like looking at the cairn of stones, would remind them of what God had done for them at that time. How he had done this and how he had met their needs. But when we don't record it, we don't remember. And when we don't remember, we suffer. Because we do remember the bad stuff. We need to make an effort to remember the good stuff. Seems to me that every good thing is uphill and every bad thing is always with the stream. So beware a selective memory when it comes to Egypt and when it comes to anything. But you'll notice that the devil didn't just give them a selective memory, he also gave them a distorted memory. And by a distorted memory, what I mean is that he, he made the recollection of things things which he gave them to recollect, he made them a lot more attractive than they really are. Isn't it interesting language? We remember the pots of flesh and the bread to the full. What an interesting way of describing food. Pots of flesh and bread to the full. They don't even say enough bread, which is what you would expect of a, a group of slaves. And a strange way to describe meat, pots of flesh. The devil's wanting them to think more of what they had than it actually ever was. So he doesn't just choose the memories, he dresses them up. Dresses them up. Reminds me very much of an incident that always uh, stuck in my own head from the scripture when Esau was uh, wanting Jacob's stew. 
Um, Esau, of course, we're told, was a very profane man. That's what the New Testament tells us. He lived, he was a, a very sensual man. He, li- he lived for his senses and the pleasures of the senses. And he came to Jacob, of course, when he was, he was very hungry after being out on a hunt. He says, I'm, I'm ready to die. Of course, that's just his talk. He says, give me, give me some of that stew. But the interesting thing is, he doesn't say the word stew, which is a remarkable thing. There's a good Hebrew word for it, and we're told what it was. It's in the King James, it's pottage. Pottage is maybe now an old word, but it's essentially stew. It's a thick soup. And uh, Jacob had cooked it, and Esau says, when Esau says, I want some of that stew, he says, I want some of that red stuff. The red. And in fact, because of what he asked for, we're told that the name stuck to him. The D-M consonants in the Hebrew are red, like Adam comes from the red earth. Edom is the name given to the descendants of Esau. Why was Esau called red? Well, it may have had to do with his appearance originally, but it certainly stuck to him because of his desire for the red stew. Give me some of that red. Give me some of that red stuff. It's not called red anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, in the New Testament, it's called a morsel of food. Esau calls it red stuff. That's the difference between sin when you want it and sin when it's seen in retrospect. Just a morsel of food. But the devil wants you to have it and he makes you feel that you can't live without it. Jacob famously said, you give me your birthright and I'll give you this stew. And Esau says, what good's my birthright to me? I want that stew more than I want the birthright. So he sells his birthright and he gets the stew. And what's the stew? Well, the New Testament tells us. Like I said, it's just a morsel of meat. We're told that Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his birthright. You could effectively say he sold his soul. He sold his soul because what he wanted at the time just overtook everything. So all that mattered to him. All that mattered. But that's how the devil makes the past sometimes look. It's how he makes Egypt look. You look back and you see your pots of flesh. Everything was wonderful then. Rose-tinted glasses. The devil makes sure that you wear them. And like I said, the, the temptation is for all of you, me too, to look back sometimes and say, well, it was better in Egypt. No, friend, it was not. It was not better in Egypt. That's why you came to the Lord. Now, the wilderness is tough before the promised land, but you weren't promised the wilderness would be easy. But freedom in a wilderness is better than bondage in Egypt. And don't you forget that especially when you're on your way to the promised land. Remember too that the heart, like nature, abhors a vacuum. It abhors a vacuum. And if if you're not filled with the Lord and with his ways, then you will start to crave after the world. You'll start to look for it. 
There's no neutrality in life. It's always one or the other. It's the Lord's people or the world. It's the Christian life or the worldly life. There's no middle ground. There's no neutrality. And if you've ceased to fill yourself with the Lord, Egypt will start to look attractive. And you'll just remember the good things in it and it will start to pull your heart. That's what's going on here. And I suppose they would never have realised it had God not allowed them to hunger. So allowing them to hunger is not cruel. It's merciful and it's gracious because it shows them what they need to deal with. Where does all this complaining come from? Well, the short answer is it comes from their hearts. Of course it does. But how does it spread so easily through the camp? How is it that when one or two people say, well, you know, this, we were better off in Egypt, how come some people don't come along and say, just don't say that? That's no answer to the problem. How does it get a hold? Well, there's one or two things in the book of Exodus that we just left till a later time. For example, uh, the firstborn and so on. I said at the time that we'll come back and look at the firstborn later when it comes to the priesthood. Another thing that we left behind, you just turn back up to chapter 12 and verse 38. It's an interesting little detail at the time of the Exodus. Verse 37, sorry. Just, just go to verse 37. This is the very beginning of the Exodus. On the night when they fled Egypt, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. Now listen to this. A mixed multitude also went up with them, as well as flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Now who are they? Well, the clues in the name. They're a mixed group. These are a group of people, <coughs> probably fairly large, who for whatever reason felt that it was the better option to go out of Egypt along with the Israelites than to stay in Egypt along with the Egyptians. Not because they really had any spiritual understanding of anything that God was doing, but some reason it was just the choice to make there are lots of reasons why people sometimes identify themselves as Christians or, or join a church or, or whatever there always have been lots of reasons when the seed is sown as the Lord himself said some falls on stony ground um, some falls on thorny ground they both shoot up some of them receive the word with joy but they have no root they don't endure, they fall away. Even the twelve apostles the Lord chose. Was Judas not amongst them? What on earth was Judas doing amongst them? Well, what was he doing amongst them? It's obvious that he had some interest in the Messiah. He had an interest in the Messianic kingdom. It's obvious that his view of it was very worldly. He wanted a king. He wanted a king to for nationalistic reasons, to make Israel great again, just like lots of countries want to be great again. He wanted a position of power and influence along with the Messiah. Of 
course he loved money too and that's part of the whole picture and when it became plain very very plain on that day when Mary poured out that precious ointment that was worth what 20 20,000 pounds when, when it became plain on that day that the Lord was not interested in money when it became interested that he wasn't interested in the kind of kingdom that Judas was interested in he said I, I've had enough of this I'll get what I can I'll make a deal for 30 pieces of silver I'll sell the Lord he's not my kind of Messiah after all this Christian life that I was attracted to these Christian people that I was attracted to not really after all ways too hard the trials are too difficult it's too demanding like a pliable in the slow of despond out you get and you go back to the city of destruction they didn't like tribulation or the self-denial the renunciation of the love of the world and its pleasures now the reason I'm mentioning this is because this mixed multitude make a distinctive appearance later in the Bible. You can turn to Numbers if you want. I'll read it anyway in Numbers chapter 11, which is only just a bit after this, just very, very shortly after this, although it's separated by a couple of books in the Bible. Numbers 11. Verse 1, we're told that when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard and his anger was aroused. In verse 4, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept and said, Who will give us meat to eat? Here you go, we remember the fish, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. And there is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Imagine being fed up of a miracle. Imagine being fed up of a miracle. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. The interesting thing is that they began to complain, the mixed multitude, and it affected the whole camp of Israel. All it takes is one worldly person sometimes to start making the whole church of God feel that something is not right. Korah, Dathan and Abiram were jealous of Moses and Aaron and they whipped up the elders of the people and then they whipped up the people themselves and they went and said you're taking far too much power to yourselves because the whole congregation is holy. Of course every tyrant makes a plea to democracy. Every tyrant makes a plea to democracy. Sometimes the people who use democracy most often are the greatest tyrants in their hearts and we're not short of them in this country. All the people are holy. How dare you take such a position to yourself? And just by the use of a few choice words, the whole of the people of God almost are in rebellion. But was that not true in that sacred house in Bethany when Mary poured out that oil as an act of such love and such devotion for the Lord whose death and resurrection she saw, saw so clearly Judas does a quick calculation and he said for this could have been sold for 300 denarii and the produce given to the poor he said sounds great sounds great of course John tells us that he didn't say that because he cared for the poor, but because he was the treasurer. He had the bag and he used to siphon from it. But that's how he presents it. 
And the Gospels tell us that when he said that, the rest of the disciples said the same thing. All it takes is a worldly person viewing spiritual things with worldly eyes and Christians who would have seen things differently are suddenly viewing them the same way. That's the influence of sin. That's what the devil does. That's how he works. And that's how he worked here. The mixed multitude. First to complain. Why? Because they're still Egyptians. And one of the biggest problems the church has is when her membership is full of Egyptians. And she encourages that problem when she encourages Egyptians into a membership. Just to make a membership big. Well, it's full of Egyptians. So you will have problems. Of course you will. And friends, we all need, if we are professing Christians, to watch out for people who are professing Christ and who always seem to weaken our devotion to Christ. They always seem to be trying to encourage us or entice us to do certain things that are going to weaken our relationship with the Lord. Now, I'm not saying to cut yourself off from such people, but you make sure that you lead them and that they don't lead you. And if you find that their influence over you is too great, well, by all means, then cut it off. Just learn to recognize those who are leading you away from the Lord rather than those who are leading you to the Lord. And to flip all that round, you and I should make sure that we are those who always encourage people, young or old, to follow more closely to the Lord and warn them regularly against the Egyptians. Of course, this complaint was directed against Moses and Aaron. We're told they took that complaint to Moses and Aaron. Moses is spiritual enough to know that that's not the whole truth. He says, the Lord hears your complaints that you're making against him. What are we, he says? Your complaints are not against us. They're against the Lord. So often our complaints are we moan about anything and everything. And really, it's all, it's directed there and it's there. <coughs> complain against you, you complain against me, complain against circumstances, difficulties, and really it's all there. It's, go, it's going up the way. That's where the complaint is. It's God we're really complaining against. The amazing thing here when the Lord deals with it is that he doesn't actually chastise them, except with the chastisement of his, of his love and his word alone. His word alone. I'll give you quails in the evening, he says. I'll give you bread in the morning. And time's gone. We'll come back to this next Sabbath morning. God willing, we'll be moving to something else. Again, God willing, this evening. Let us pray. Lord, our God, help us whenever we do look back to consider the loving kindness of the Lord and his uh, tender mercy and to remember the way which you have led us indeed to humble us and to test us but you have shown us your deliverance and kindness your long-suffering your goodness and we pray that the devil would not be allowed to selectively order our memories or indeed to distort Enable us to learn what you are always teaching your people, 
My soul, wait thou with patience upon thy God alone. On him dependeth all my hope and expectation. Deliver us from impatience and insisting upon our own timetable. Deliver us from self-sufficiency and self-reliance. Help us daily, each morning, to commit ourselves to the Lord, to do so with gratitude, with thankfulness for all mercies received. In the Saviour's name. Amen. Our last psalm is Psalm 105 at verse 40. They asked, and he brought quails. With bread of heaven he filled them. He opened rocks, floods gushed, and ran in deserts like a stream. For on his holy promise he and his servant Abraham thought. This is God being faithful to his own promises. With joy his people, his elect, with gladness, forth he brought. And unto them the pleasant lands he of the heathen gave, that of the people's labour they inheritance might have. And here's God's purpose, that they his statutes might observe according to his word, and that they might his laws obey. Give praise unto the Lord. The last four stanzas let stand to sing.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.